Well, thank you for inviting me again here, you guys, to give you the word. Today we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last time I I taught on Colossians 1, and I was going to go through Colossians this year, and I will the next time David invites me. But I have been struck by 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's a message for our time. It's a message that we all need to hear. So if you would, again, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be looking at that chapter today, verses 1 through 16. The Lord says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter time some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And pointing out these things to the brethren you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance. With the laying on of hands by the presbytery, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Praise God. We are in a passage this morning where you have the Apostle Paul that is teaching young Timothy how to pastor a church. He was at the Ephesians church. It was a larger church, kind of a the church that all the other churches look to for leadership. It's the church that Jesus' mother ended up moving to and being a part of. It was a church that, again, Timothy would pastor. And he says this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. It says, Luke says, I know that after my departure, Paul says as he's speaking, 
Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts, but Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Today, we are going to look at the danger of apostasy. That's leaving the faith. Number one. Number two, the danger of deception the deceitful spirits that it talks about here in verse 1. And then finally, the danger of false teaching and where it can lead if we follow false teaching. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war, aren't we? And we know, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's about principalities and powers in the heavenly places that are trying to tempt us, that are trying to deceive us, that are trying to pull us away from the truth of all eternity. They're trying to pull us away from what we have believed when we accepted Christ as our Savior and gave our life to him and began to walk with God, all of you here who have done that. So these spirits are constantly at work, constantly trying to deceive, constantly trying to get a foothold, right? Ephesians chapter 4, in our lives to derail us, to confuse us, to get us going on a, another, even if it's good, it can be a bad trajectory for us at certain times in our lives, right? And the scriptures today are there to remind us what our center is and where we should be focused. Amen? It says this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Now, when it says the Spirit explicitly says, this is the only time in the entire Bible it uses this word explicitly. So it's basically saying, please, please listen. Please understand that this is very, very, very important. He's saying it expressly. He's saying it distinctly. Listen to what the Spirit is going to say here. So now we live in the latter times, but he's also talking to Timothy, young Timothy, right? 1900, 2000 years ago. So the latter times has been for the last 2000 years. These are the latter times. We are closer to the end than Timothy was back then, aren't we? A lot closer. In fact, some think that we're getting right up to the precipice of the very end, where Matthew 24 and all of the things that it talks about happening before Christ comes back are beginning to happen. The birth pangs, it calls them, right, in Matthew 24. Now, this is an exciting time for the church of Christ, but it's also a time according to Matthew 24 that says, in the end times, lawlessness will increase and most people's love will grow cold. We've watched this happen before our eyes in fast time in the last couple years, haven't we? 
people are starting to turn on one another. It's difficult even to go to a family gathering with extended family and know what to say. We often are saying, you know what? In our minds, we're thinking, you know, it's better to keep my mouth shut right now because I don't want to give up my testimony. I don't want to die on a hill that is not worth it politically or whatever the, the you know, health, uh, vaccines, non-vaccines. There's so many different hills that people are dying on right now. At the same time, God is giving us in this passage some handholds, some things that we need to be aware of to make it through, to do it right, to make sure that we're holding to what is true and make sure that we're holding to what God is teaching us. In verse 2, these doctrines of demons, these deceitful spirits do this. How do they do it? By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. So they're not manifesting in front of you. These demons you're not seeing float around your room whispering lies into your head. No, they're doing it through who? People. They're doing it through people. People are the ones, the agents that the demonic uses. Now we know he's not, people are not going to be filled with demons if they're in Christ, are they? They have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, a demon can't dwell. Now we can give them legal ground according to Ephesians 4. Give them footholds. That foothold is really legal ground when you study the verbiage in the Greek. We don't want to give them legal ground. How do we give them legal ground? We open doors. I'll use the, the, the real popular word now, portals. We open a portal in our life. Okay, these portals are open how? They're open by sinning willfully against what God has said is right. So, if we subject ourselves to things that, if we go out and, and commit adultery with the prostitute, if we walk in drunkenness, if we give ourselves to lots of these things, it opens these portals, it opens these doors, doesn't it? And these footholds are real. Now, they don't possess us, but they do oppress us as believers in Christ. This specifically, I believe, is talking about those who don't know Christ, who the demons do use to communicate to us the lies of the father of lies, right? And we need to protect ourselves, protect ourselves from these people and realize not only that they're there, but they want to derail us from following the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the truth that will ensure that we are believers in Christ and that we will be with Christ when we die, right? That's the most important thing. Those things that we need to know and understand in order to believe the truth of God so that when we die, we are with him. All right, so these people, these hypocrites, it says in verse 2, they're liars, they're seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That means that they have violated their conscience so many times where God has said, don't do it, don't do it, and they just keep violating. They just keep 
doing it over and over, and they've, they've seared their conscience. They're beyond the point at which they are listening anymore to the Spirit of God, that they're listening anymore to what God is saying to them. And what are they doing? They're doing, in verse 3, they're in, back in Timothy's day, they're men back then who forbid marriage. We have movements in the, quote, Christian world, right, that says, don't get married. That's the best way to handle it. The whole Catholic Church, all of their priests, they forbid to marry. That's a perfect example. And now what do we have as a result of that? We have men all over the world that have struggled extraordinarily with sexual deviance. And they're in court all over the place. And it's in the news all the time because they haven't had the opportunity to have wives and have normal relationships. Now, can that happen even with men who are married and women who are married? Of course. Yes, it has happened. We've seen it over and over again in our culture as people have given themselves over sexually to an addiction that has put them in a bad spot, fed again by another portal, open door, pornography, right? Right? And then it can't it gets worse and worse. It can lead to many different forms of deviances, including hurting children, right? And we have people we've heard of and seen of dealing with things in our life that we need to repent of. So often, even in the church of Christ, we are struggling with pornography. We're struggling with things online because it's all over. It used to be you had to go somewhere to get it. Now, it's here. It's always right here. And you can get it. And we have to say no. We have to say, Lord, I don't want to open that door. I don't want to let the enemy have that, that territory in my life, that, that, that legal ground. I want to keep them away. Right? So there are men who forbid marriage. And there are also, according to verse 3, ones who say, you can't eat certain foods, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. These are two sure signs of deceitful spirits or the doctrines of demons. And you've heard, I'm sure you've heard, I have heard people say that if you really want to walk with Christ and be faithful to him, then you should not eat this or eat that. We need to go back to the Old Testament dietary laws where you can't eat pork or you can't eat this, or you should eat that. But what does the truth say? The truth says that God has created all of these foods to be shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. I remember as a young child, my parents were missionaries going, house to house, staying at different places as they did deputation. And as they traveled, we would eat different things at different houses. And we were always told, please don't ever complain. Eat what's put before you. Now, as an older person, that might be tough if you have dietary restrictions. Your doctor might say, you need to be on a certain diet and you shouldn't eat sugar. You shouldn't eat white flour, bread, or rice or whatever, whatever your diet is, right? You shouldn't eat this, you should eat that. 
And there's times that you, you, if you're at a place that you need to say, you know what, this person has put a lot of time and effort into this, and this is their ministry. And there are times I've eaten something and said, Lord, I know I can't eat this or shouldn't eat this. But Jesus, please, please give me grace. Please give me mercy as I eat this. I don't want to eat it, but I feel like I need to eat it as a ministry to him or to her. And I eat it and trust the Lord with the result. Now, you don't have to eat the whole thing, do you? You can eat a few bites or eat half of it. But we need to realize that God has created all these things for good. And we don't want to operate in legalism. We don't want to follow the doctrines of demons. For everything, again, is created for God, by God for good. And it's sanctified, verse 5, by means of the word of God in prayer. So pray. If you have to eat something you don't want to eat, pray. I've had friends on missions trips who've been served the craziest things you could ever imagine. I remember one one time was in a village, and I think that it was monkey eyeballs. You know, it was like, you know, I don't really want to eat that. But this was a delicacy and something very important to those who, who actually sacrificed to get that. And who took the time to prepare it. It was a ministry, and they knew they had to eat it. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. You pray and ask for grace. Maybe God will make it taste like chicken in your mouth, right? <laughs> It'll be good. All right, and pointing out, verse 6, these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Sound doctrine is one of the chief themes of this chapter. Sound doctrine. We need to make sure we stick to what the Word of God says. Now, this struggle has been going on for thousands of years. It really came to a head in Billy Graham's life when he his best friend, in fact, they still have a picture in the archives at Wheaton of him with Charles Templeton uh, together as they were meeting together to discuss how they're going to win the world for Christ. Charles Templeton ended up leaving the faith. He ended up turning on the faith and ended up when they were very, very, very close, he ended up um, becoming first an agnostic and then an atheist. And Charles Templeton, in his book entitled um, Farewell to God, right, a year or two before he died, he wrote this about his last meeting with Billy Graham as they discussed the scriptures and as they discussed truth. He said this, all of our differences came to a head in a discussion which better than anything I know explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe. For instance, the biblical account of creation, the world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? 
Billy said most of them, yes. But that is not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered that something in my ministry, when I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, and there are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all the sides of the theological dispute, so I've decided once and for all, questioning once and all, I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. Charles said, but Billy, I, he says, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide, he said. Billy said, I don't know about anybody else, but I've decided that that's the path for me. I remember the story of Billy taking his Bible when he was wrestling through this, even probably long before this conversation with Charles, going out into the woods for several days and coming to the conclusion, wrestling with God, saying, God, I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with this. God's spirit came in and said, Billy, you've got to learn to trust me. You may not be able to understand everything that I've written and why I do what I do, but you have to trust me. He took his Bible, he laid it on the ground, and he laid on it, and he said, God, from now on, I will never again, never again question your word, never again question your truth. And that was a turning point for him and enabled him to have the strength of character to stand up to his dear friend, Charles Templeton. They said he was more gifted than Billy Graham. They said he was so eloquent and so gifted. But here you've got a man very, very smart who threw all of that away to begin intellectually breaking down the word of God, making what he believed, what he thought he should believe, making himself what? God. And that's the deception all of these people fall into. They make themselves God. And they decide what's true. And they decide what you should believe and what they believe. Lee Strobel interviewed Charles Templeton right before his death, the same friend of Billy. And if you remember, Lee was the attorney um, who was also an, a journalist up in Chicago and he despised the Christian faith. His wife came to Christ, and he was livid. There was a movie about four or five years ago that came out, and it showed that whole story. It's a wonderful movie, wonderful book, The Case for Christ. And he ended up, as he did his research as an attorney, as he did his research as a journalist, he ended up concluding that the evidence was far greater for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the validity of the word of God and for the Christian faith than there was against it. And he came to Christ. So he interviews Charles Templeton, and this is what happened. 
Oh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most, he stopped. This was Charles Templeton. Then he started again. In my view, Jesus is the most important human being who has ever existed. The question was, Charles, what do you think about Jesus? Charles's response as, as an atheist was, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected, Lee says, to hear from him. And if I put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively, finally quietly, but adamantly he insisted, enough of that. Reminds me of Judas Iscariot, who hung himself, saddened as he wept. But men who have cast the truth aside and have chosen to doctrinally believe the teachings of demons who have walked away from Christ and have led others into their same demise. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So, we want to make sure our doctrine is correct. What we believe is sound, according to verse 6. Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is really a funny way to put it, isn't it? And some people cringe when it says that, because they say, Paul, he struggled with women. Well, I think in that culture, what he did for women was elevate them far, far beyond what they were in the Greek world. Because women were not acknowledged many times, and even throughout the scriptures, we see women constantly being in the middle of the narrative, in the middle of the story. All of the women that followed Jesus, uh, surrounding his resurrection, we've got women who were there, unafraid, unafraid to stand at the cross, unafraid to go to the tomb to anoint his body, and they play such a significant role in the church. But he says this, uh, old wives' tales, you want to be careful with them. Well, what are some of the wives' tales we have today? One of them says this, if you tie a wedding ring on a piece of string and hold it over your pregnant belly, if the ring moves in circles, your baby is a girl. If it swings back and forth like a pendulum, then it's a boy. That's an old fable, isn't it? Another one, the world has been duped into believing that pulling out a single gray hair will result in the creation of several more. But luckily, according to cosmetic scientist Randy Schuler, he says there's no harm in plucking out a gray hair. What you do to one follicle doesn't affect its neighbors. 
Another one, people who crack their knuckles constantly will get arthritis. That too has been proved to not be true. And that was what I was told growing up all the time. I would crack my knuckles. I said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. You'll hurt yourself. You'll get arthritis when you get older. That again has not scientifically been proven at all. So we need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That means to not believe in all of these things that people toss around. They might sound good, but they're not biblical. There are many of those, especially when it comes to biblical truth that are speculation, that are fables, that aren't in the word of God. We need to be careful, don't we? Verse eight, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the things to come. He's staying on God doctrine or the, again, the right teaching, uh, godliness, right? At the same time, he's also throwing in bodily discipline. Doesn't mean we shouldn't go to the gym or that we shouldn't work out or we shouldn't walk or we shouldn't buy that bike that we need to buy and ride it, okay? He's just saying comparative to spending time with the Lord and growing in holiness, growing in godliness, growing in those disciplines that are necessary in order for us to walk with God, it holds little profit comparatively is what he's saying here. It's a trustworthy, verse nine, statement deserving full acceptance. He's saying, listen to what I'm saying here. This is not a fable. It's not an old wives' tale. This you can count on. You can bank on it. Godliness is profitable for all things. And what are some of the disciplines that we need in our lives? If we're going to walk as believers through this, these temptations, through all that the enemy's throwing our way, the doctrines of demons, what do we need to do to walk successfully? How do we walk with the Lord throughout this? We set time aside in the Word of God each day, don't we? We need to spend time in personal worship, prayer, right? We need to build ourselves up in the faith and not just subject ourselves to the world. We have to do that. If we go outside the house and work, right? Now, it's becoming easier with some who are working inside the house with that, and you're not rubbing shoulders each day if you're home on your computer, but you're still going to be affected. As soon as you turn your TV on and watch any commercial, you're going to be affected, aren't you? It's a differing worldview than our own. The prince of the power of the air has control or mastery over the TV and what's on the TV, those things that we subject ourselves to can deceive us. We need to guard our hearts and be careful. So these disciplines of godliness, having a time with the Lord each day in his word, praying, prayer is important for us to connect with the Lord, connect with him so we're strong in the faith. The flesh and the spirit are at war, aren't they? They're at war. So if we feed the flesh, it's going to win. If we feed the spirit of God by these disciplines of godliness, making sure we're holding ourselves to the doctrine. Doctrine is just what do you believe, right? 
the doctrine in God's word, then we're going to win over the flesh. They're at war with one another, according to Romans chapter 7, in each of us. An ancient African proverb says they're like two dogs who fight. Which one is going to win? The one that you feed. The one you feed is the one that's going to win, whether it's the flesh or whether it's the spirit. Amen? For we labor, for this we labor, verse 10, and strive, he's saying again to his young protege, his Padawan, his grasshopper, Timothy, young guy, right? You with me? He's trying to get him up to speed. Hey, man, you're going to run a church. You're going to be a pastor. You better understand what's going to go on. These savage wolves are going to come in, and they're going to try to take your people away. These demons are going to come in, and they are going to be people even in your midst in the church, people that look good and have acted good up to that point, but they are going to deceive people and take them away. For this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, this is not teaching universalism. This is not teaching what one of those men who have gone astray and who are teach, is teaching the doctrine of demons, Rob Bell, love wins. Everybody's gonna win in the end. Love's gonna conquer all. Everybody's gonna go to heaven again. Hitler, Stalin, everybody's gonna be there. Love's gonna win out. Jesus is gonna save everybody. Is that what the scriptures teach? No, that's not what the scriptures teach. What it's saying here is, is that believers are going to be saved, but remember this, God is the one who blesses everyone. There is no good in this world. That neighbor who is a great person, but who doesn't love Christ or want anything to do with Christ, God is the one who's given them common grace, the breath in their lungs, who keeps them from dying from cancer who keeps them from wrecking on the way to work, who's given them food to eat, who's given them a good job. He's blessing them here, one of my old pastors says, has said to me. He's blessing those who are without Christ here in, in many ways. If they follow just the simple truths of loving your neighbor as yourself, if they follow his word in any form or fashion as a non-believer, any of those principles, then they will reap benefits from that. He'll bless them here. But this is their reward. One person says this, said this, for an unbeliever, this life is the best that they'll ever get and as close to heaven as they'll ever get. For those of us in Christ, this life is the worst that it will ever get and the closest to hell that we will ever get. Amen? God has rescued us. In this verse, it's saying, yes, God saves believers, but according to Scripture, it's very clear. Those who don't believe him and don't trust Christ will not be with us in heaven. So he saves people daily, minute by minute, day by day. He is that one who gives all that's good. He is the giver of good to all mankind. It's called the 
technical, the doctrinal word, the theological term is common grace. Yes, he gives grace to the unbelievers. The fact that they woke up this morning and they're mobile and able to go do anything, he's given them common grace. He is allowing the very breath in their lungs to sustain them. And yes, they owe him their life, right? They owe, they owe him their belief. But they will not believe until we pray for them and they come to know Christ, right? We need to pray. There's hope. As long as there's breath in their lungs, we hope and pray for them and extend our love to them and hope that they will see the truth. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things, Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Prescribe is a word that we hear when we go to the doctor. He gives us a prescription. It's an order. It's a charge. All right? Timothy, I'm charging you to teach these things. Be doctrinally correct. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Over at our church in Lexington on Wednesday night, we had a, a 21, 22-year-old do the Wednesday night service. He's a CIU a student, and uh, he is aspiring to be a pastor, a Calvary Chapel pastor. He's dating one of the girls on our worship team. He grew up in our church. His father went through our U-Turn for Christ program. His name is Aiden. He's a special guy. We need not to look down on young people who God's raising up to be ministers for Christ, to be missionaries, to be pastors, to be pastors' wives, to be leaders, to be teachers. We need to make sure we're careful to not look down on them. At the same time, they, as they aspire to the work of the ministry, they need to watch their speech. They need to watch their conduct. They need to love, be full of faith, purity, showing themselves an example of those who believe. If they're young in the faith, they still need to have the godliness that those who are older in the faith have to make sure they're not a stumbling block to those who they teach or those who they are leading, right? I know that uh, Charles Spurgeon began preaching full-time at 16 years old. He's one of the most gifted teachers, preachers that the world has ever known. At the height back in the late 1800s, he preached to 10,000 people at a time. They said you could hear him four or five blocks away. God gave him a voice that could carry probably more than most of us in this room or any of us in this room. He was very gifted and different. God made him for a time and a place, and God gifted him. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. We've done that this morning. We've read Scripture. Exhortation is consoling, comforting. There's times in our lives we need this. We go, we're going through suffering. We're going through hard times. I had two friends go through terrible circumstances this week, close friends. Gino LaRusso's son, uh, Dominic, on Monday morning, uh, ran off the road, overcorrected, uh, flipped his car, and broke his back. He's now uh, paralyzed from the waist down, 18 years old. 
been in our youth group, been in our church for years. Uh, Jimmy Sadler is a hospice. Uh, some of you may know him. He's a hospice pastor. He's a chaplain. He lost his sister from COVID on Friday. People suffer. We have to console them. We have to comfort them. We are the priests of Christ. You know, if you are a believer in Christ, it is, do you know that you're a royal priesthood? You're like the priests in the Old Testament. You are the ones ministering to these people that are suffering in need. And we need to love them. We need to console them. We need to comfort them and help them through these difficult times that they're walking through. Verse 14, don't neglect, Timothy, the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. As Pastor David clings to the doctrinal truth of the Word of God as he does it accurately and he teaches you what the Bible says verse by verse. He is ensuring salvation both for himself but also for you that you would not believe error, that you will not believe the doctrines of demons, those things that the enemy is going to bring your way to try to, to, to derail you if you don't know Christ yet, to try to get you to believe something that's not even true, right? So that you don't get saved. So praise the Lord for Pastor David. Please pray for him, pray for me. Pray for those who are teachers of God's word. It says in the book of James, for those of us who are teachers, we uh, incur a stricter judgment, doesn't it? Uh, James chapter three, uh, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. One of the persons teaching the doctrines of demons right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, oh, to tell you exactly, one of the chief ones in North Carolina, are you ready? Teaching the doctrines of demons you've got to be careful of. He went to the same schools my dad went to. He went to Moody Bible Institute got his degree from Moody. Then he went to Wheaton, and he has, he's one of the best teachers. He is an excellent teacher, except the fact that he then went to Princeton Seminary. And Princeton Seminary, as he has confessed, is where he learned the doctrines of demons. To, to try to get those hearers to, to diminish the Word of God, to, to not believe the Word of God. And now he calls himself an agnostic, I think at times even at times an atheist. But again, he believes in the person of Christ. He was a literal figure that lived in history. His name is Bart Ehrman, or Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N. He's, he, now look, listen, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, has hired him as the the distinguished professor of New Testament studies. All right, so he is the one that's sitting in the seat teaching our young people what to believe about Christ or what to believe about their faith. Uh, he teaches eight courses there uh, on Christianity. Now, these are the books he's written. Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why 
and why, excuse me. Next book, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. The next one, Forged, colon, Writing in the Name of God, Why the Bible's Authors Are Not Who They Think They Are. All right? This guy has written a book on heaven and hell. He doesn't believe in the afterlife at all. He believes in annihilation. He quotes Rob Bell in his book. He believes what Rob believes, who wrote Love Wins, that everyone will be saved in the end. I don't understand what it's for if, it's, if we're all annihilated and there's no heaven. But he, um, he lifts Rob up. Um, he goes... In his book, he applauds the rise of universalism in Christian churches, hearkening back to origin. That's an ancient church father. And Paul, before him, these committed believers maintain that in the end, no one will be able to resist the love of God. Everyone will be saved. He's misquoting Paul, is he not? The doctrines of demons. He is very, he's very, uh, uh, this guy has gotten a lot of attention. He's been on a lot of TV shows because he's deconstructing Christianity for our young people. He's showing them how to walk away from the faith without any conscience whatsoever. Again, changing the word of God for what he wants them to believe so that they're led astray. Now, this author of this article who wrote this about Bart Ehrman is Randy Alcorn, who wrote the book on heaven. Amazing book. Amazing believer in Christ who loves God so much. He says this about Ehrman. He inaccurately conveys what the Bible says. Um, when accurately conveying what the Bible says, he then declares it's wrong. <laughs> He argues the text really doesn't say what Christians believe it says. And he cites scripture to support, in support of its contentions, even though he regularly dismisses the scripture's validity. Ultimately, what he does, y'all, is he uses the word, he's the New Testament scholar, okay? He uses the word of God to disprove the word of God and to lift himself as God is saying, okay, this is what you need to believe. I'm going to tell you what to believe. Don't believe what the scriptures teach. He is definitely one that the scriptures talk about in 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 3 for 4, and we'll finish with this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they, want, they will want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their hearts, their ears, I'm sorry, from the truth and will turn aside to myths, to doctrines of demons. This is what Bart is doing actively, what Rob Bell is doing actively. Joshua Harris, who wrote, remember, Kissing, Dating, Goodbye and made millions of dollars off all those dating books, Believer in Christ, He's turned away from Christ completely. Doesn't believe anymore. It's terrible, isn't it, that these people are turning away. So we need to guard our hearts, brothers and sisters. We need to protect our young people. We need to make sure that they are ready to go into the university setting where they will attempt every way they can to dismantle everything they believe. In closing, I remember Lou 
Gill in prayer. We used to have like three or four hours of prayer about once a month at church. And Lou would come and her son went to Carolina, ended up in the Honors College, ended up there being exposed to a group of homosexuals, ended up becoming a homosexual himself, got his uh, degree, medical, medical degree, um, his medical doctor, moved to Atlanta, where he still p- continued to pursue his lifestyle, throw his faith to the curb. Got AIDS. Mom, uh, Lou, moved to Atlanta um, to care for him to his death. And I just remember her coming back and just shaking as she would talk about it. Uh, she's with Jesus now. But Lou would just say, uh, Dan, you know, what he was exposed to in college. You know, if only we could go back. If only we could turn the, the time back. Um, we need to guard ourselves. We need to make sure that we stick to what the scriptures say, that we don't feed the flesh. We don't open ourselves up to the work of the enemy and give him a foothold legal ground. Guard our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you will win. Father God, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us who know Christ, against our children who know Christ, who may be struggling and wandering from the faith even now. God, please call them back. I know some of them wander for years, God, but Lord, as Proverbs said, I pray that, Lord, they will come back to what they have been taught, to what they have known, to what they have confessed to as children and teenagers, Lord, before they've wandered. Lord, we pray that you will rescue them. Our grandchildren, Father, we pray, Father, that you will guard us, guide us through this maze of demonic activity, this maze of craziness in this culture, Lord, who lives for the flesh, who feeds the flesh, who wants to take us with them, Lord. Give us strength, Lord. Give us resolve, Lord, to spend that time with you each day, Lord, feeding the Spirit. Time in your word, time in worship, private worship, time in prayer. To your glory we pray. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.